1: Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and as always, I'm so delighted and happy that you've decided to join us on, you know, it seems like we're getting closer and closer to spring, so I want to say this spring day. I mean, technically, on the calendar, on the calendar, we are in spring, but remember, your plants probably don't have access to a calendar, and if they did... I don't know that they would be able to read it. <laughs> but, you know, looking at the weather forecasts and whatnot. I don't know, I shouldn't say. It it, it appears like we'll, we'll we'll be okay. We'll be in the 40s here and there. Uh, definitely for the rest of this month, which is next week and part of April. But we're increasing that night temperature. That night temperature is what we're talking about. Now, is a frost possible sure and and frost we don't have to be really in the freezing to have a frost Um, but remember frost can damage new growth on plants it'll definitely damage your tomatoes and and your summer vegetable plants so your little baby seedlings if you've growing them indoors take them out on nice days great sunny days putting them in the shade a little bit so they can become acclimated we call that hardening off you know a front porch that doesn't get direct light is a great place to start hardening them off or under a shady tree getting your plants out while the weather is nice and warm it will it will stimulate them to grow but keep an eye on those night temperatures If you are growing seedlings and you're preparing them, hardening them off to be planted outside, maybe next month. Be sure they don't spend the night outside camping out in cold temperatures. And 40 degrees in the 40s is really too cold for these. It's not going to kill them if it's high 40s. Uh, But you can maintain warm temperatures for these seedlings and, and things you may be starting indoors they will perform a lot better. Don't let them go from an extreme of, you know, maybe 70-ish in the house down to 45 at night. So be sure that you are checking the weather. I'm going to say this every week for the next couple of weeks, maybe three, until we get into April really good. Uh, Be sure that you are checking the weather, uh, being confident, being confident that you won't leave babies outside uh, that are too tender uh, to be in cold temperatures. And of course, you know, there's something to say about microclimates. We haven't talked a lot about microclimates, but the idea, of microclimates, is that, you know, you and I may be gardening in a similar part of the world. You and I may not be. But for those folks who are gardening near each other, in the same town, in the same county, uh, in the same five-mile radius of each other, even though you're very close to each other, if particularly here in the southeast and Piedmont area where we have uh, topography that's quite hilly, uh, there's hills, there's undulating lay of the land, there can be low spots and there can be high spots. There could be spots that are shaded by trees, there could be spots that are in full blazing sun during the day. And so, different factors, topography is a big factor but of course uh, plant material that may be growing nearby buildings parking lots now we're talking about man-made structures that can add to these microclimates also large bodies of water ponds and lakes in particular Uh, of course there's plenty of lakes up here in northeast georgia and if you look at even the um, usda hardiness zone map usually uh, the zones around a lake are kind of a mess Parts are seven up here, parts are eight. Some are seven B, some are seven uh, eight A. And so these microclimates are really something that we need to consider. And you yourself, depending on uh, the cardinal directions north, south, east, and west, of course, the east and the north side of the house tend to be cooler, the south and the west side of your house tend to be warmer. And so uh, you would be looking at these areas as maybe potentially different microclimates. And like I said, if you have a low spot, if you are, like me, gardening on a slope and, and sort of a hill uh, that crawls down to lowland where there's some water, uh, some, some creeks in, in the bottom land, then you're going to find that planting high up on the hill may be completely different than planting down low in the valley. And these microclimates can really affect, uh, particularly particularly in the... All winter long, but also that early part of winter, late fall. And then, of course, late winter and early spring. When plants are going dormant in the fall, microclimates can be a concern. And then, of course, when plants are coming into to leaf and they're starting to regrow uh, near spring, microclimates can play a big role. Thinking, too, about maybe a smaller home landscape. Where you're not worried about large tracts of land, uh, maybe like you would in the country. But in the city, I already mentioned parking lots and driveways, surfaces like that that can capture heat and hold on to heat. And houses and buildings, structures themselves can also hold on to heat and then at night radiate this heat back into nearby planting areas. And just these structures and the way these structures are positioned, north, south, east, west, this too can help to create these microclimates. So you may find that on certain sides of your house, you get more winter damage than you do on other sides of the house. And it's the house itself uh, and maybe other factors that are leading to these microclimates. So be sure that you are on the lookout for No, Let me back up. Be sure to know what direction north, south, east or west your house faces. And that will guide you on the other sides of your house. If you know where north is, then you can find south and you can find east and west. And that will definitely guide you on making good planting choices putting things in those areas that may be considered a microclimate. <laughs> so something that maybe needs a little more protection, a little bit more warmth, if you will, you may focus on the west or the south side of the house. But of course, since the north side of your house is basically in the shade all the time, it doesn't, matter, it doesn't really matter uh, if it's your house, my house, your neighbor's house, your best friend's house, your grandma's house everybody's house is going to have a shady band that is casted by the house itself um, on the north side of the house and so keep that in mind that if you know where your house faces how it sits and of course if you know you have low areas uh, that that maybe stay a little cooler when it is cold then that is going to help guide you into planting things in the right spot so With all that being said, we're going to be watching the weather for the next few weeks. We're going to not jump out too early. Just because we may have a run of three or four days that are nearly in the 80s, maybe the 70s, we'll see what happens. Just know we're still at this volatile time where our nighttime temperatures may affect some of the things that we rush out to plant when it feels good to us. Just because it feels good to us doesn't mean that it feels great to the plants, And I've already mentioned before, and I'll just say a brief statement, that even though the air temperature feels good to you and me, that'll feel great for most plants when we're in a a 60s to 70 degree days. But just remember that the soil temperature is going to be very important. And on a previous show, uh, we did talk about going to the UGA weather app, finding a city that is near you. And they usually have a weather station nearby. They're distributed all throughout the state. And you can find the temperature, average temperatures, of that area's soil at 2 degrees deep, 4 degrees deep, and even 8, sorry, 2 inches deep, 4 inches deep, and 8 inches deep. And it will tell you the degrees, the temperature at those certain depths. And that, too, is just as critical, just as critical as Knowing the air temperature. Remember, I'll summarize with this air temperature can change from one minute to the next, usually over the course of a couple of hours. It can go from warm to cool. But soil temperature moves very slowly, it changes very slowly. So you're looking at uh, maybe weeks. Uh, Of course, we're coming out of winter, so the ground was pretty cool, but we've had some nice warm days. And once the soil starts heating up, it does take a long time to cool it back down. So we're headed in the right direction as far as the temperature of the soil goes. So think about air temperature, uh, both daytime and nighttime. Think about soil temperature, but also think about your very unique microclimates that are created by different structures and topography uh, and factors that are really unique to your space. And really, folks, experience. That's what it's going to take. Trying things, you know, yes, making well-educated decisions on what you're going to plant and when you're going to plant. But if you find that a certain area stays too cold over winter or too, too warm at certain times of the year, then we need to adjust and just learn Learn for it's trial by error in many things. Well, gang, today is the last Saturday of the month. It doesn't seem like it has been that long of a month, and of course, we've really only had maybe about four, uh, four Saturdays this month. But March is coming to an end, and you know if you've been listening to New Southern Garden for any length of time that. On the last Saturday of the month, we answer your questions. Now, we sort of answered questions last week because, of course, our producer here at WRWH, uh, Trent, he did send in a question. And we got a lot of responses from last week's show. Uh, An individual who's here from her all the time, great listener. She said it was a very interesting show to talk about turtles, but we did. We talked about plants that are going to work well in a turtle tank. Uh, Of course, it's not just a turtle tank. If you want to grow plants in a terrarium indoors, it can be a beautiful indoor display of your gardening skills. We did talk about some great plants that can handle growing in the tank indoors with low light, maybe increased moisture because, of course, if there's animals in the terrarium, uh, you're going to have a lot of moisture. And we talked about a number of plants and some other things. So be sure to check out last week's episode Let us know what you think. Was it too strange to talk about? I don't know, Mr. Producer. I think it was helpful um, for you especially. So uh, be sure to check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com and on Facebook and Instagram where, of course, uh, you can contact us. You can send us your question for next month's Q&A. And of course at the end of April we'll be answering your April questions. So today we do want to jump into the mailbag, into the mailbox, into the inbox, wherever you have sent us your questions. And here we have a question from Frankie here in Northeast Georgia talking about gypsum. Basically saying, should I use gypsum? I hear people talking about it. Um, I don't know a lot about it, uh, but somebody said it's really good for the soil. So should we be using gypsum? Now, gypsum is one of these strange things that uh, we don't really know a lot about. Some people maybe uh, market it or pose gypsum as a magic uh, ingredient, as as a magic solution to several gardening uh, dilemmas. But there's not really any magic to it. We're going to break down the science for you. Uh, We're going to explain today about what gypsum is. Uh, what it does for your plants in particular and also what it does for the soil. I really hate that certain people talk about gypsum as some kind of magic thing because there is no magic behind it. It is all just science and it's not necessarily the best thing to put in every kind of soil. But for those of you who are listening here in the southeast and particularly the Piedmont area, it is a uh, highly beneficial to our clay-based soils. If you are listening to us from California, maybe it's quite arid. Uh, it may have some applications for you, but if you're listening to us from the Midwest, you probably don't even need to consider using gypsum, except as maybe a soil, uh, a plant fertilizer. And of course, we're going to talk about what nutrients, what nutrients, I should say, that gypsum actually provides to your plants, because. Even though I wouldn't classify gypsum as a magical thing, it definitely can be a nutritious thing, and it is a way to supply a couple of important plant nutrients that if you don't have access to them in your soil, then you can use gypsum to supply that. But we'll get into the details of what nutrients these are and what other benefits gypsum has after this break, so hang on tight, and we'll be right back. So, gang, today on New Southern Garden, we are answering your questions. This is the last Saturday of the month, and you know that on the last Saturday of the month, we do go to our inbox, our mailbox, our mailbag, our Instagram questions, our Facebook questions, wherever you've decided to reach out to us, Uh, we are answering your questions. And, of course, that was uh, Eden Rose telling us to give it a go. And this morning, we're answering Frankie's question here in Northeast Georgia, we're going to give using gypsum a go. Gypsum. Now, of course, every time I hear the word gypsum or say the word gypsum, I automatically think of a gypsy. I don't know why, because I guess because it sounds like gypsy, right? And in a good respect, gypsum is the gypsy of the uh, horticultural world because many people tout gypsum as some kind of magical. Solution, magical power, it has magical powers, maybe like a gypsy would. But it's not really magical, it is all science, as I mentioned before the break. Now, gypsum is a word for uh, a product that in the chemistry side of things is nothing more than calcium sulfate, calcium sulfate. So, as a matter of fact, uh, many of the sheetrock that much of the sheetrock that we use to build houses with here uh, in the states is made up of this gypsum this calcium sulfate and uh, you know it works well for a sheetrock for for a wall Uh, of course it's sort of like a plaster if you think of it that way it's not wood uh, but it is a chemical compound it is a sort of mineral in, in a way it's calcium sulfate and I guess it works well on the walls and houses. You know, if it gets wet, you damage the sheetrock, but the sheetrock doesn't fall apart. It doesn't just crumble. It doesn't just liquefy when it gets wet. And this is a critical factor that we're going to talk about when it comes to gypsum and applying it to the soil because, of course, uh, when we apply things to the soil, they get wet. And if it doesn't necessarily fall apart quickly, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, for our garden soils. So, gypsum or calcium sulfate. Let's talk about exactly those two things, calcium and sulfate. These are two factors of gypsum that can benefit your plants. Of course, plants need a certain amount of calcium and they need a certain amount of sulfur or the sulfate part. Now, let's sort of divert here for a second and say that calcium and sulfur are both considered plant micronutrients the key word is micronutrients now most of the time when we're buying fertilizers we are looking at a bag that has a lot of macronutrients okay and i want to describe the difference between the two so the big three fertilizers that you see, or nutrients, on a bag of fertilizer, they're separated by that hyphen, right? So you've got like 10-10-10, or we call it 10-10-10. That means 10% nitrogen, 10% phosphorus, and 10% potassium is included in that bag or bottle. Now, those three are considered macronutrients. Some other macronutrients are hydrogen and carbon and oxygen, but most of the time, plants are getting those from the air and the water. So here we have a fertilizer bag that they clearly identify the macronutrients. But what are these macronutrients? Well, macronutrients are simply nutrients that plants use in large amounts, macro amounts. Whereas micronutrients are nutrients that plants use in small quantities or smaller amounts. Macro does not mean that New, these nutrients are more important and micro does not mean that the micronutrients are less important no all of the nutrients that a plant needs from the big the, the big uh, big consumers I guess the nitrogen potassium phosphorus those things are just as important as the micronutrients okay macro and micro does not mean one is more important or one is lesser than the other as far as plant growth and development goes. So initially, we need to accept the fact that plants need all of these nutrients just in different amounts. If you have a plant that does not have enough nitrogen, it's going to show deficiencies, and it's not going to grow very well. But also, if you have a plant that is deficient in calcium, one of the micronutrients, it will have a a deficiency, And it's not going to grow to its full potential. Okay, so don't think that just because we need um, or or just because we have uh, the word macro that those are more important. It just means we need to apply or provide the plant with more of them. So we're talking about calcium sulfate or gypsum, which is essentially calcium sulfate, including calcium and sulfur. So we've got two micronutrients uh, that this product can supply plants. And it can supply the plants, uh, both of these, pretty well. Uh, It definitely will supply the plant with calcium very quickly and very soon. However, the sulfur part may drag on a bit, so we could consider that slow release. If you need a quick jolt of sulfur on your plants, gypsum is not the best fertilizer to use. Probably aluminum sulfate would be, which is more available, readily available uh, to the plant, at least as far as uh, quick release. So, yes, gypsum is a wonderful source for calcium. And also for sulfur. Let me mention something about sulfur since we're talking about the fact that gypsum can supply your plants with sulfur. Back in the day, and this was before my day folks, but back in the day, probably pre-1970s, our area had ample amounts of sulfur. But since the 1970s, we're seeing more and more deficiencies of sulfur. Let me tell you why. So before the 70s, there was a lot of smog, a lot of pollution in the air. Okay, And it just turns out that <laughs> that pollution released sulfur into the air. And when it would rain, the rain would bring the sulfur down to the soil. But guess what happened in the 1970s? We cleaned up our house. We took the trash out. We tried to make things a little nicer around the place. And so we were not releasing as much sulfur into the air. And so we didn't have so much sulfur falling from the sky. Now, of course, you know, you've heard that term back in the 70s. I guess it was coined acid rain, right? Sulfuring was a part of that. Uh, so it's it's probably a good thing. That we don't have sulfur coming from the sky anymore because it was a larger problem, a a, a byproduct of the larger problem, which was pollution. So now that we've cleaned up things and our air is a little better at least, we're finding that our plants in our garden spaces are maybe becoming more deficient in sulfur than they ever have been before. So, gypsum is a good solution to providing your plant that necessary micronutrient, sulfur, So if you take a soil sample and uh, you send it off to your county agent or, well, in our state, we send it to our county agent and it goes to the University of Georgia. Uh, If you're in another listening to this program online, you may have another route to take. There are third parties, of course, who will also test soil, but uh, it's for about $8 here in the state of Georgia. You can have your soil analyzed and tested, and if there's a problem with sulfur, they will let you know it. So you don't necessarily have to add gypsum for the sulfur uh, to provide your plants unless you actually know you have a sulfur deficiency. All right, so again, to summarize the fact that gypsum is a good fertilizer... It's not a well-balanced fertilizer. It does not have any of the macronutrients. It only supplies these two things, calcium and sulfur. And unless you need, unless you need calcium or sulfur, there's really not a reason to apply it uh, to your garden spaces and your planting areas. So keep that in mind, that the first thing, Frankie, that gypsum can do for your plants is provide calcium and provide sulfur. But then some people wonder if it will change the pH of the soil. Will it make my acidic soil sweeter or will it make my alkaline soil more acidic? Will it balance the pH? Well, you're going to have to wait for the other side of this break because we're going to talk about what gypsum does from the pH side of the soil. Hang on tight, gang, we'll be right back with more. Well, gang, today on New Southern Garden, if you're just joining us, uh, we are talking about sort of this mythical gardening product called gypsum. And I say mythical because there are a lot of myths that revolve around it. There are a lot of things people think they know about gypsum, uh, but they may just not be true. We really, we really still. I remember when we talked about gypsum at University of Georgia uh, when I was studying horticulture there. That. We talked about it, but the professor's like, we really don't know a lot about it. We're still studying it, trying to see what it really does for us, and how it changes the soil, and, and how maybe it feeds the plant. But there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to gypsum, and there are some things we do know about it. One of the the first things, of course, that we've just finished talking about is that it it is, gypsum is a good plant fertilizer, but it only provides two Ma- Micronutrients. They're essential nutrients, don't get me wrong, but plants don't need a lot of them. That's calcium and sulfur. We talked about how we are seeing more deficiencies in sulfur these days because we've cleaned up the air. Back in the 70s, I even remember, uh, you know, you may think I'm too young for this, I don't know, uh, but I love the Carol Burnett show. And she would talk at the end of her program before she pulls, tugs on her ear, you know, let's clean up the place. She was promoting Uh, cleaning up pollution stop polluting the earth and so there was big pushes for that back in the 70s in particular we carried that on and so because there was less pollution there was less sulfur in the atmosphere which would fall with the rain and then it would infiltrate the soil and feed plants so now we're seeing less sulfur in the soil and gypsum is a good way to provide plants necessary sulfur but there's another thing, other than the nutritional aspects of gypsum, that some people believe, some people think. Some people think that gypsum is an alternative to a, another very common gardening product that we call lime. Lime. Everybody thinks we've got to be using lime. Now, it's not a perfect alternative. We need to keep that in mind. Lime and gypsum are not exactly the same, and and you can't necessarily alternate between the two. Probably the only similarity that they share is the fact that they both have calcium. So when you say uh, gypsum is like lime, we really only mean that they both have calcium. Now here's the difference between the two. Yes, they both have calcium, but lime slowly releases its calcium to the soil and then to the plants. Gypsum is much better at giving your plants the calcium pretty quickly. So if you're going to, if you need calcium in your soil and you're going to use lime, You need to do that probably, you need to add lime to that soil probably three months at least before you plant because it's slowly going to release. So, if you add calcium the day you plant, your plants are not going to receive the calcium for several weeks, maybe pushing into months. Gypsum, on the other hand, its calcium breaks down pretty quickly. And now let's use a practical example. You know, when we're growing our tomatoes, When we're growing our tomatoes, there's a terrible disease that we get. And it is a disease, but it's not due to a fungus or a bacteria. It's due to a deficiency. And this disease we call blossom end rot. It's not just on tomatoes. Also, we see it on squashes and cucumbers even. Peppers, they can suffer from blossom end rot. And it's where the blossom end of the fruit starts turning brown and soft and essentially rotting. Now, it doesn't always ruin the entire the entire tomato or the entire pepper. But definitely, it's compromising um, the prettiness, if anything. You could cut it off and eat the top, I guess. But that blossom end rot is due to a deficiency in calcium. So, if you already have your plants growing and you find that you have blossom end rot, Applying lime is not going to solve that problem very quickly. It's slowly going uh, to release that calcium to the plant. So a better option in this practical application would be to use gypsum as a source for calcium to counteract the effects of blossom and rot. So lime and gypsum are not perfect alternatives, but they both supply the plant calcium just at different rates. Gypsum is faster and lime is much slower. Now the other thing that lime does when you apply it to the soil is it actually turns your soil from an acidic soil and increases the pH so that it becomes more alkaline. Now in the southeast particularly in the Piedmont where we have so much of the uh, clay-based soils our soils tend to be quite acidic Okay, let me give you an example. Uh, We're going to be growing some cut flowers at Lanier Nursery and Gardens. We're going to call it the flower farm. That'll be in Flowery Branch, Georgia. You can find me there throughout the week, that's for sure. Um, But we're going to be growing some cut flowers, and these cut flowers uh, need a certain pH. Well, guess what? My pH at the flower farm was 4.9. Now, the pH scale runs from 1 to 14, Number one would be super acidic and number 14 would be super alkaline, super sweet. Number seven, right in the middle, is what we call neutral. Now, plants don't love to grow at neutral. Some of them do. Some of them love to be a little above neutral. But for the most part, most plants love to be in this magical space. (laughs) I shouldn't say magical. But this perfect little space between a pH of uh, maybe 6.5 or 5.5, somewhere in there, to to maybe pushing uh, close to seven. So we were super, super acidic, really, 4.9, it's not the lowest I've seen, but I was hoping we'd be near 6, we were not. So we had to use lime to raise that pH and sweeten the soil to get us to that 6 or 6.5. Gypsum, on the other hand, is not going to affect the pH of the soil. So keep that in mind. Lime will provide the calcium, gypsum will provide the calcium, but lime will alter the pH of the soil, whereas the gypsum won't bother the pH of the soil. So if you don't need to change the pH of your soil, Frankie, but you do need calcium or, of course, the sulfur we've talked about, then gypsum would be the better option. But if you go and send your soil to the the soil labs at UGA and your county extension office, and they tell you you need calcium but you also need to change the pH of your soil, you're too acidic, you need to sweeten the soil. Then lime would be the better choice in this situation. So, again, one of those myths about this uh, uh, gypsy of the garden we call gypsum, <laughs> it's not super magical, uh, but it's not an, a true alternative to using lime. your landscape you've got to figure out just what your problem is and one of these two either lime or gypsum should be able to solve uh, the calcium deficiency or of course the ph problem as well so those right there are two of the biggest points that we need to understand about this strange thing we call gypsum or calcium sulfate now the other point that we need to make is and this is highly beneficial for our area when you have a clay-based soil that's hard and compacted gypsum does this strange thing and actually helps to soften the soil now it doesn't work in every situation it doesn't work very well on sandy soils to do that. But it does work well on clay soils to break up compacted soils. And you know that our soils in the south are high clay. They're red in color. They are made up of very small particles that when they get compacted, it's hard to bust them up. Well, what this gypsum will do once it infiltrates the soil solution uh, in your soil is it will start pulling the particles together and helping with this aggregation of soil. Now let me explain what aggregation is. The perfect soil, the perfect soil structure, the way that the soil is is, is constructed is not going to be hard and compacted. No, a good soil structure is going to have a lot of Pore spaces. Now, pore spaces are these open areas between clumps, uh, not necessarily clods, but sort of these aggregates. And there's pore spaces that water can move through, and when the water's done draining, air can hang out in, and that creates a wonderful solution around your plant's roots because you have plenty of moisture, but not too much, and plenty of air, but not too much. If we had too much water, we would have rotting roots. If we had too much moisture uh, sorry uh, too much air we would have drying out of the root system both of those extremes are terrible so the ideal structure of the soil has these little pore spaces uh, that are essentially these holes between particles of soil now think of this soil structure like a chocolate cake all right you take the chocolate cake out of the oven and you take it out of its pan and you start cutting it and then you take a fork for each slice, and you start peeling it away. And what happens is these clods, not clods, these chunks start falling apart, and If you look at these chunks, you'll see little tiny air holes in there, right? And that is what we hope for with a good soil structure. Nothing too hard and compacted and nothing that just falls apart uh, like sand through the hourglass. So are the days of our garden, you know. So what we're looking at here is this aggregation. Think of those chunks of chocolate cake that are holding together but also have air gaps between as the perfect soil structure. And gypsum does a very good job of create, helping to create that. Now, it's not the only thing that's going to help create that. Probably the best thing to help create that great soil chocolate cake structure that we uh, hope for is going to be organic matter okay so that's why we talk so much on this program about compost and manure and mulching your soils all of this organic matter is going to decompose break down the earthworms are going to eat on it other insects are going to eat on it they're going to yes excrete that stuff just like all living creatures have waste and their waste is then broken down even further by bacteria and fungus and the bacteria and fungus die and there's even smaller and smaller particles of organic matter sort of create this glue organic matter essentially at the end of the road the end of decomposition creates this glue that helps to hold the soil together and create these air pockets and these spaces these pores we call them pore spaces that water can filter through just like that chocolate cake so gypsum is on the sort of mineral side of things but it too can help supply your soil uh, with this aggregation this this sort of connecting of soil material and breaking busting up of compacted clay soils so it is sort of magical <laughs> after I've told you gypsum is not magical it sort of is magical when we consider the fact that it can help us with our hard, compacted clay soils to break down, uh, bust up the clay. It is a true clay buster-upper. But remember, when it comes to using gypsum, it's not lime, but it does give you calcium and sulfur. It's not going to change the pH of the soil, which is good if you need calcium, but not a pH change. And then again, the last thing, Frankie, thank you for your question about gypsum. The last thing is it can help you with hard, compacted clay soils that we find all across Northeast Georgia. Hang on tight, gang. After this break, another question from our mailbox. So, gang, if uh, you're just joining us today, you're, you're right here in the last segment of today's show. But for the most part of today, we talked about this uh, magical <laughs> this magical compound we call gypsum that has some benefits. But don't think of it as too much magic. It's all really just science. Uh, and I would encourage you, uh, if, if you missed the first part of the show... That you check it out later online at com, And, of course, you can also find us on your podcasting apps. But I do encourage you to learn more about gypsum. Don't just take my word for it. Uh, look into it. Uh, we need to learn more about it. Even though, like I said, when I was in college, there was still research being done. And the professors were honest, which is good. You want your teacher to be honest, right? Uh, but they said, we don't know. Everything about it, we really don't know. It it is sort of strange and unusual, but we do know certain things about it, and there are certain characteristics of gypsum that can help you improve your soil and feed your plant. It can be considered a soil amendment uh, because, again, it can help you with getting that nice chocolate cake aggregation (laughs) soil that we're looking for, that soil structure, but it can also be considered a plant fertilizer because it does provide calcium and sulfur in particular, which are essential nutrients for plants. They just don't need a lot of them. But we do have a question here from Carol, um, who, I think, Carol, we have talked about this before, but it's super timely. So be sure to check out some of our past shows online at NewSouthernGarden.com to find more information about your topic but carol is talking about uh, creating some garden beds new garden beds she does mention here that she's planting these beds or going to install these beds in a large expanse of lawn and i love what you're doing carol i love the idea when we dig out lawn uh, (laughs) and plant horticultural plants Uh, remember the most maintenance in the modern American landscape, is turf grass. If you want a low-maintenance tur- uh, low maintenance landscape, remove as much turf as you can get away with. Because remember, for trees and shrubs, you may prune them one time a year at most. But when it comes to a lawn, you're pruning it, or we say mowing it, once or twice a week in the summer so carol uh she is talking about here looking to install new beds and what's an easy process uh to get it started i know it can be a bit intimidating carol when you're looking at these large expanses of lawn and you you need to create some boundaries where you're going to plant and where you're going to keep the grass so here's a few steps that i take and actually of doing this at the At the house, uh, as we speak, I'm working on creating some new beds. So here's the approach that I take. Um, The very first thing you need to, to, to determine, Carol, is how large of a bed you need and what shape you want the beds to be so of course when we talk about shape you could do oval you could do circle you could do square if you want some uh, strict straight lines but most of the time people want a natural smooth curvy bed curves always feel more natural than straight lines straight lines give you formality which of course if your landscape calls for that or you yourself want to have a formal looking garden you surely can use straight lines it doesn't matter just determine what is best for you now of course kidney beans are those classic uh kind of natural looking beds a kidney bean shape so you sort of have a a, an oval but you curve one side of the oval inwards Uh, that can work well for planting things Uh, it does look very natural and then of course something like a not really a snowman say uh, a snowman with a body and a head not a middle section right so maybe a figure eight almost a figure eight Uh, bed. That could work as well for a natural look. But you've got to determine the the style of the bed you need and of course the dimensions how long it needs to be how wide it needs to be and one of the ways that i like to do this sure you could get out graph paper and you could sketch out your space and you could draw this first that's completely appropriate but remember a drawing is only necessary if you're trying to relay that to a landscaper or somebody else or if you want to get some ideas out and and not make some rash decisions In your garden space, Um, the next thing you could do is take your garden hose, uh, unscrew it from the uh, from the tap or from the spigot, as we say in the south. Unscrew it from the spigot and pull that garden hose on a bright sunny day onto the space that you're going to place your new bed, and let it soak up some heat. Let that rubber hose get really warm in the sunshine, because what you're going to do next is you're going to take this hose garden hose and you're going to start drawing your bed line right there on your turf grass if you want it to be a nice circle you can manipulate that garden hose to make a circle if you want to make a kidney bean shape manipulate the garden hose to create that kidney bean shape and that way you're not putting something down on the ground like say uh, chalk uh, not chalk, sand, sometimes we'll draw uh, lines with sand in the landscape or spray paint. You know, those aren't necessarily permanent, but it sure is hard to erase spray paint. But it's super easy to just move a hose around. So once you have the shape you want and the size you want, you've got your hose there, you could come back with a spray paint or with flags, like landscape flags. Uh, it could be any kind of ribbon on, on a little stake, and, and you could mark that out because, of course, the next step will be to dig. And you don't want to, I don't like to dig uh, right beside my uh, garden hose because, My shovel is sharp, and I've damaged many garden hoses by leaving it there, trying to dig around the hose. So you may mark the line with spray paint or something uh, as a visual. Then remove the garden hose, and now you have your bed shape. It's the size you want, the scale you want. Now, the next thing you're going to do is around the edge of the bed, around the edge of the bed, I take a sharp spade, a flat end spade, uh, and we're not really talking a flat end shovel. This is a spade. It sort of has an angle, uh, it, it, it taper, and so it really gets down into the, to this grass and cuts the roots, and at a 45 degree angle, I will trace that entire bed, making an edge to the bed. Then I will take the spade and get underneath that uh, 45 degree angle cut I made along the edge and flip the soil over into the bed so that now the turf grass is touching turf grass and we've got a nice edge and we've got soil and roots exposed. That'll encourage the edge of the bed to start drying out and the uh, grass there will die. Now at this point you could chemically eradicate weeds which in this case your turf grass that's existing inside of the bed is a weed or you could dig out the turf grass. It is a good idea to dig it out out if you'd like to but it sure does take a lot of work so what I like to do Carol is I like to go ahead and leave the grass as it is and mulch it very thick. Thicker than we normally would. Uh, Maybe three to four inches thick rather than two which is acceptable around plants. And anything that tries to push through that mulch because the mulch is going to suffocate and smother a lot of the turf grass. But there will surely be certain weeds that pop through. Then I may use chemistry or uh, hand dig and hand weed anything that tries to push up and survive. And that way you're not using as much chemical by spraying the entire bed out and it's not as much work because you're not digging all of the turf grass out. Either one is appropriate. That's just the method I like to take. So folks, go out there, take Carol's uh, question here and install some new beds because folks, we need to be planting, planting, planting in 2023. Well, for uh, New Southern Garden and WRWH, my name is Nathan Give Wilson. Go. <laughs> Give gardening a go this weekend. Stay well and grow well. We'll see you next week.
0: Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350
1: for Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show.